Speak softly loud and hold me warm against your heart. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Hollywood Godfather Podcast. Uh, we have our normal crew here, Pat, my man. Johnny, how you doing? Good, good. Everything's good. And our beautiful Megan. How you doing? Is uh, going to be asking a lot of questions tonight <laughs> because tonight's show is about presidents. And it wasn't for me learning about, I, I, you know, as a little kid, as all of us, presidents to us were everything. And uh, I didn't know how corrupt they were. <laughs> and... Uh, well, let's let's call them let's call them normal. How's that? Normal, okay. <laughs> normal. Right, yeah, that's that's a, that's a little bit more politically correct. Okay. Okay. So we're we're gonna get into a, a really heavy situation. The first time I was ever aware of presidents being on the take or being controlled by the mob was JFK, and that's because that's when I first got involved with. Um, Mr. Frank Costello, which we all, I think, established by now. Yes. Do you know who he is now, Megan? Yes, I do. What, who I is he? Tell, tell the audience who Frank <laughs> Costello is. So he was a very important mobster, right? Basically, Ed? Basically, he, uh, that, that's a, a very limited uh, <laughs> addition for the, I mean, uh, definition for the newcomers that might be tuning in. Uh, Frank Costello, basically, with Maya Lansky and some other major people, created what was called the syndicate after just organized families in certain countries, I mean certain states, they wanted to get something bigger and then they started to meld the Jewish heritage with the Italian heritage and a couple even Irishmen like Joe Kennedy, but uh, that's how they created the syndicate. And uh, as I said, my, my first knowledge of a president being controlled was JFK because Joe Kennedy came to Frank Costello. That would be his father. The father, Joe Kennedy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, no, his brother was killed by that time, but I shouldn't assume everybody knows that. But Joe Kennedy and uh, Frank Costello, just to give you some background, made millions and millions of dollars during Prohibition. So with this, he felt he had the entree to ask Frank Costello and all the people that he knew to help his son John become president. And what the deal was that, you know, you get all your unions from, including the International Longshoremen's, the Culinary Union, the um, Teamsters, I mean, every major union in the world, and their membership at the time, they could sway any election. And this is long before, you know, all the campaigning we see now electronically, before that was newspapers and, and billboards and going around giving speeches. So to get a, a mass membership that large to back one candidate, you would assume he'd win. And I got involved in this early on by running all over the, the country, bringing messages to these particular people to get- How old were you at the time, Johnny? Uh, when I started do, when I, I started meeting Senator John F. Kennedy, was 1959, so I was like 16, 17 years of age. And it was a tremendous experience to me, and, and I loved John Kennedy. I mean, John Kennedy was a guy's guy, I mean, a guy's guy and a woman's guy, which I loved. <laughs> and um, I met him at the Sands Hotel for the first time, 
Well, in, in, in what capacity does a 16-year-old meet a senator? Well, that, they gave me, I mean, they, Frank Costello trusted me so much just to be his eyes and ears because after the uh, Appalachian Crime Commission meeting that fell apart and everybody got indicted, everybody was basically shy and going to meet five families or all the world bosses, including all the New York and state bosses in, the, in this country. The only place they did do it, and they were given the background how to do it, was have these people check into a major hotel. So they used basically the Waldorf Astoria, and some of the some of the major guys kept suites there all the time. So nobody can just think that, you know, and the good news for people who are not familiar with the Waldorf Astoria, it's a block square. So you can enter it on Park Avenue, you can enter it on Lexington Avenue, you can enter it on 49th Street or 50th Street. And with that said, you know, it was, you know, people would sporadically move in and take their rooms under aliases. It was long before the Patriot Act. And you didn't have to show ID or any of that. And uh, so that became the hub and the nucleus of organizing all of this and having their meetings. And in fact, that's where the meeting took place with Costello and, and Joe Kennedy. He checked in and they went through it all. My job early on was to travel around, give the messages to Corky Savella and Nick Savella in, in Kansas City. They ran a lot of the Teamster stuff, as did Chicago with Frank Fitzsimmons after our good friend, uh, um, Mr. Hoffa was sentenced in jail. He was doing about four or five years by that time. And with that, then, you know, the Kennedy thing came to be. And the reward was, which was very gratifying to everybody contributing, that Joe Kennedy promised that if his son became president, they would invade Cuba and give all the casinos back. So basically the mob would own Cuba, the island, and it's a win-win for everybody. The mistake after John did become president was he made his brother attorney general, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So um, you want to add anything to that, Pat? You were on the streets. Yeah, well, so so you're down there to keep your eyes open, and, and basically who's going to suspect a 16-year-old kid of being anything except a 16-year-old kid? Right. So that's the entree you had. Nobody paid attention to you, basically. <laughs> Yeah, and, and people like, you know, Sinatra and everybody else already knew me from the Copa because I met Copa, I mean, I met Sinatra two or three years prior to that. And um, so I, I was very used to being seen on the property called the Sands Hotel at that time. And I was also very used to being at the pool and at Jack and Trotter's little compound on that same property. And that's basically where everybody mingled late at night at that so pool. What so, so what kind of shenanigans was JFK up to? That, oh, I, that's what people want to know. No, I mean, to me, that was, I mean, that's what was so crazy about this guy. I mean, he's such a good-looking man. I mean, he had everything about him. I mean, I've met a lot of people who have charisma. You know, my, my last president that ha had the same charisma was Bill Clinton, but we'll get into him later. But John, I mean, was a womanizer. Everybody knew that. He had uh, already, there was the rumors of his romance with Marilyn Monroe and so many other starlets. And basically, 
Nobody even knew who I was other than the kid, and he's around us, and that's it. And everybody just took that for granted because I had power to pen in the hotel. I could sign for anything I wanted. I was in every showroom, may it be in the lounge or wherever, and I had my table and, and respect, not as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old would have, but as, as knowing that he was a liaison to certain people and don't ask so many questions. That's what the word was anytime somebody went further. Why is he here? It's not your business. And they'd shut so, him down. So what, what kind of a guy was Kennedy? What do you know that, that basically very few people know? What well, did you see? Well, I mean, I see, I mean, it was a, tr a tremendous womanizer. And it was a, a shocking thing to me because I've been around showgirls even at the age of 16, 17 because of the Copa girls. And he didn't realize, uh, how can I put this, that their vaginas were all shaved. I guess Irish girls that he went out with had these monstrous bushes. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But it, it, it wasn't stylish back then, I guess. No, I guess not. I mean, to be honest with you, I never saw one until I saw Julia Prowse's either. So I think we both witnessed Julia Prowse nude in the pool. But, okay, so for, for those of us who don't know who the hell Julia Prowse is, I mean, I know. I don't. Well, oh, there you go. Well, <laughs> Julia Prowse was an up-and-coming dancer-singer and a headliner already. Everybody she loved her. She was a movie her. star. A, a big movie star, but I'm talking about yeah. in Vegas. Why yeah. She, yeah, she was a movie star also. So, I mean, but a lot of people don't see any longer. When you had a studio contract, even Marilyn Monroe, anybody, they would groom you for dancing, singing, acting lessons. So when you were under contract, that's what they were doing. They were grooming a new talent, and she was not new, but fairly new at that time. And uh, amazing lady, gorgeous lady, and there was rumors. I mean, she, you know, I, I don't want to say that that they were promiscuous, but it was a way of life. If you wanted to succeed, not like today, this Me Too stuff. I mean, th these girls had calluses on their asses. They've been on the you know, casting couch so many times. Unless they're not going to get to where they want to be, and they were and willing let's to not do. Forget, it. this was before AIDS. This was before. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, this was, like I said, this was part of society then. But especially, so, uh, especially is, I wouldn't say society. I think it was a way of life. If you wanted to make it in Hollywood, that's it. I mean. So so, so you're saying that uh, Julia Prowse and uh, JFK had a thing? Not really. What it was is everybody used to meet at the pool two or three o'clock. I mean, it's not like he had a romance with her. Because yeah. at the time, he was really involved with Marilyn Monroe. And... Uh, but it was just, we we're all thrown together. Not me. I always sat in the corner watching everything. It was like insane for me. It was like a, a, a live uh, adult porno film with movie stars like Ava Gardner and Shirley MacLaine. Everybody was there. And anybody was anybody used to come to the Sands Hotel at that time. Because don't forget, this is the 59s and 50s and 60s. The, the big hotels, even Caesars Palace, nothing was open yet. So Caesars became... The, the mecca of Hollywood and everybody came there and you know that's when Sinatra even did two weeks at a time two shows a night which was amazing but and and Senator John F. Kennedy for a kid from Mulberry Street saying this, I'm, I'm hanging out with a senator <laughs> you know and that's what I was doing basically so he, he was a party he, he liked to have a good time oh yeah and, and I think I think the, the marching orders even for his brother-in-law Peter Lawford 
and Sinatra at that time was to make him be happy because we're going to groom him and we're going to try to make him a president. And obviously all of those things happened. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But during that time, they introduced him to cocaine. And I'm saying to myself, this guy's going to be a sitting president? <laughs> and he's snorting lines off of Julia Prowse's stomach just so he can get close to her bush. Non-bush, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> Non-bush, yeah. But um, it, it, I mean, it was a, t- a tremendous time in my life. And then as we got into me traveling around and just having my ears to the ground, it was even, I mean, during the primary when he actually announced his candidacy, then they were taking the, the polls and all of that, not like they have today, they're that sophisticated, but they realized they needed Texas, and that's why, that's when I went to Texas to deliver a couple of envelopes to people down there, and uh, they they got Linda Bain Johnson to run with them, and Linda Bain Johnson hated the Kennedys, and hated everything they stood for. But now, again, many years later, I have overheard a couple of times that they convinced them because they said you'd be in line for the next presidency. And that's why he did it. But um, that remains to be seen of how and why he did it because there's a rumor also that he brought Kennedy to the Knoll that morning. And um, if you knew he was going to the Knoll, you knew he was going to be assassinated. And that's my first little bit of presidents. And I love John Kennedy. I I came before uh, Kennedy. Oh, no. Yeah, but between Eisenhower was a general. You couldn't touch this guy. I don't don't know, to be honest with you, about him. Okay. I I, I heard rumors. I thought maybe you would know something about that. No, what I did hear definite rumors about was a guy from the Midwest called Harry Truman in 1945, who was before Ike. And Chicago had him in their pocket. Really? Oh yeah. No, no. That that's that is for sure. How did he help out? Well, I don't know because I, I was in '45. I was three years old, so I don't know. How old, two years old. No, but I'm just uh, saying. In you know, the the good news about me having a a, a a rabbi or a sponsor like a Frank Costello, I found myself many times in Tammany Hall, and that's in New York. That was like the uh, East Coast White House, because Tammany Hall controlled everybody. Mayors, senators. Yeah, they they, they ran the city. They ran the city, and then the city ran where they needed to go. And uh, with that, that's how I started to understand how corrupt politics were, not that they all were, like I said. Eisenhower, I never heard anything about. But uh, it was ironic, because... Soon after all of this was going on, and Kennedy, and then the, you know, the assassination, unfortunately, and uh, as if they read our book, Hollywood Godfather, you'll realize I left the country for 22 months. But when I came back, I realized another guy had to be on the payroll, because I opened a club with Charlie Alamo and Carmine Black called The Disc. And during that time, where was that, Gianni? That was in Miami Beach on the 79th Street Causeway. And we just opened. Sammy Davis and Liza Minnelli opened it for me. And we were an instant hit, obviously. And that causeway at the time was from Biscayne Boulevard to Collins Avenue. And there was clubs like 
Dino's Den, Jilly's West. I mean, everybody had places. And my, my very close friend, Al Malnick, had the penthouse there, a place for steaks. I mean, it was that causeway, I mean, was lit 24-7. But we opened on that causeway, and um, during that time, in uh, the, uh, the, the announcement that Sparrow Agnew and uh, Richard Nixon were gonna run, they came, they were research, uh, researching places to have their celebration party, and they came to La Disc, unbeknownst to me, because I didn't realize, you know, they were told to go there. You know, people said, you know, go, go see these guys, they're good close friends of ours. So Secret Service came, and um, they inspected everything, and again, me being naive that this guy was being controlled by them, because, you know, the contributions just from the unions itself could could back any any election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the unions could sway any election. Oh yeah, that I mean, membership. Told millions of millions no. of voters. Yeah, millions of millions of voters. And so with that, you know, I I, I got to v- visualize Richard Nixon in action, and who would ever think this guy was a womanizer? I, I mean, I, this guy should have been twins, not to carry the burden alone. This guy was ugly, <laughs> and he and he he he, he, he walked like. He was Cosimodo. He wasn't like you know this wonderful like Kennedy or Bill Cos- uh, Bill um, Clinton. He didn't have that 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 look at all. But it's so funny because the end of the party, the Secret Service left with him, and then they called me and asked to talk to me. And I said, uh, yeah. He said we just left. I'm, I was with Mr. Nixon, and. Uh, there was a couple of people that we were very interested in. He'd say he was. We were very interested. And I thought they were going to point out, you know, guy, me, maybe even Carmichael. Like, <laughs> they said the lady in the blue dress that was sitting most of the time at the bar with the other lady, um, do you know anything about them? I said, no, I know her name. And, but other than that, he said, well, we'd like to send the car back for a few ladies why don't you pick out a few ladies and tell them that, you know, we're going to have a party at the hotel and that we're, we're inviting them. I said, you want me to tell them that Nixon's inviting them? He says, yeah, I mean, it's innocent. We're having a cocktail party in the lounge. So I put a couple of ladies together and they took off. And that was it. But later on in life, I found out this one lady, which is so coincidental, became my mother-in-law to my third wife who had an affair and Pat Nixon found out about it because he moved it to Virginia. She was living in California and she had two kids, not by him, and they were, and he kept her in Virginia. Pat found out about it and obviously they, they exiled to Guam, no less, which was still part of America. And that's when they were privatizing the, the Army and Navy Medical. And they opened a big company for her, which is still in existence. And they made millions of it. I mean, so it's so funny because here I am later on marrying this other girl 15, 20 years later. And there's her mother and I'm looking at, she's looking at me. And like, that's, that could never happen, only in my life. That's crazy. <laughs> So her mother was uh, Nixon squeezed that night. And they, just that night, it went on for a while. 
Okay. Years. Well, he moved to Virgi to Virginia. Yeah. And then you know, uh, I found out later on through different ways, basically because of uh, my involvement when I came back after the Kennedy assassination. Uh, I went to Vegas, and when I got to Vegas, you know, I was doing a lot of things. I mean, at first I went to Florida, and then this whole thing happened, and then my guys, Charlie Alamo and Carmine Black, were called into New York, and uh, I thought they were gonna go get a pat on the back, because we were always sending an envelope back to everybody to make them happy. Unbeknownst to me, these guys were dealing drugs out of the back of my club, because we were on a waterway. And uh, Carmine Black uh, must have gone up on the roof to see a friend of mine who had pigeons, and he slipped. <laughs> and, and, now the end of Carmine. And that was the end of Carmine. And, how, how, how about the other guy? The other guy, nobody knows where he is. So, so I got you know a message from Costello and he knew I would never deal in drugs. He said, I think it's time for you to get out of Miami. There's too much heat on that club. I just locked the door and walked away. Didn't sell it, didn't do anything. And I, that was and that was a successful club. Oh my God, yeah. My God. Just walked away. Well, I had to because, you know, there's, and you know, the thing is, I, I was making so much cash and I really didn't have, you know, I, I went through a bad situation with a girl I was dating there who got pregnant and our family had that baby aborted. I just wanted to get away. And so I, I went to, he said, go to, the, go to the West Coast. I stopped in Chicago and met, you know, my friends uh, who t became friends with mine, mine forever, Mr. Tony Accardo, Mr. Nick Nitty, uh, Johnny Roselli, and um, Sam Jean Connor really wasn't my friend because he, I found out later, basically was the front because Accardo, being the gentleman that he was, he, Tony Accardo reminded me so much of Costello because Costello and another guy who I totally respected and I read about him and knew about him in the newspapers, he was a bodyguard for Capone as a young guy and nobody even knows this guy's name. I mean, it's, it's it, I mean, I don't well, know, I don't know if I should say it. It's a secret organization. No, no, it's a secret, I know, but uh, yeah. he and I really became friends. And, uh, you know, and so all those guys I got connected with, they introduced me to California. And then when I got to California, I met, you know, Skippy and all these other guys who were running all those unions. And then I went to Vegas. And when I got to Vegas, I, I again had a lot of money and I wanted to open a hotel. And this was like in the late 70s. So I went to the Teamsters Union and borrowed $32 million that I needed to do, you know, to get into deposits and all that because I had all the Vatican money that I could, I could have invested, but I set up different corporations, but I wanted to do that slowly and unbeknownst to me, which uh, is a part of uh, organized crime history, they had me on a wiretap in 79 and 1980 through the Kansas City mob with Nick, Nick Savella and uh, Joe Augusto, Carl DeLuna. I mean, I don't know how I remember all these names at my, <laughs> at my age, but they had me on a wiretap and it hit the newspapers. And simultaneously, 
I was breaking ground April 1st, April Fool's Day, because I thought it'd be a big spoof on the world. Because here I am building this hotel for $100 million. I had everybody there. I mean, it was called the Renaissance Hotel. And it was on the property that I had on Carmen and Coval Lane, right behind the MGM Grand, right next to the Tropicana Golf Course. Was, I mean, a choice piece of property. So with this, we had a president called Jimmy Carter, <laughs> who I don't know if he was corrupt or not. I think he was too dumb to be anything. But uh, with him in office, the construction money went to 19%. So my, my people urged You're talking about the interest rate. Yeah, interest rate on the construction yeah, yeah, money yeah, that, that, went to yeah, 19%. He, so Ernst & Young, who I was using as an accounting firm, because I was dealing with so much money, uh, they told me basically, you better pull the plug because you'd have to stay 90%, 91% occupied just to service your debt. Well, they didn't realize I was paying myself the money offshore, but still it looked good. And once I knew that they had a wiretap on me, that if I did draw that 32 million, I'd have another problem. So again, I don't know who did that for me. I want to say God, and you'll hear that a lot from me. Maybe a monkey, maybe, I don't know, but I believe in God. And there I was about to get, I don't know how many federal indictments, being brought in to testify against guys like Kansas City Mob, Chicago, uh, Frank Fitzsimmons, who was running the whole pension fund. And why would he lend me this money? You know? But that's what they did. They, they financed all of Las Vegas at that time. Every high rise was financed by the, the Teamsters Pension Fund. But, so I just pulled the plug and never drew the money. And then there was a mysterious fire. I mean, this may sound made up. You can, you can go online and find out all this stuff. It's, <laughs> it's all there, it's crazy. Because the, um, the Review Journal and The, the Sun the two major papers of Las Vegas just ran everything on these stories because I was so such a high-profile guy being so young doing this stuff. And then the fire was very questionable. What kind of fire? Fire where, man? Well, I had all these construction trailers, and uh, unfortunately and fortunately for me, all the records and everything went up in smoke. Oh, what a shame. Literally. <laughs> I mean, uh, what confounded luck. I know. It's just uh, isn't that how things happen? It's amazing. I, I, know, it's, it's, it's so, I felt terrible. I can imagine. As I, yeah. as I went to Europe for the summer <laughs> <laughs> to, to console myself. <laughs> Poor guy, man. All now, those records. That, now, Megan, that, you're, you're just see. sitting there looking at me saying, what is this about? It's crazy. But do you have any questions? At about this it? point, no. I'm oh. I'm interested in hearing more. Okay, well, I have a lot more to say. <laughs> I'm sure you I'm do. Sure. Pat, How you want to jump in anywhere on this? Do you know? I, I feel Jimmy like Carter I'm I'm talking more than most people, or, or, or actually our group. What were you doing during those years, Pat, in New York? Who were you I chasing? I was trying to down? lock up guys like you. Oh, not <laughs> me. You never get me locked up. That's what I. Yeah, you know, I, I look, man, but you were very elusive. <laughs> I never did anything wrong. I was of talking, course not. Of course not. I was always in the gray area. I never really went black. It was just so what did Jimmy Carter have to do with your uh, 
your past. Well, Jimmy Carter had two things to do with me. One, he destroyed my opportunity, but he did save me from being out of jail, so I was happy. And then uh, I, I got a White House clearance on a totally different matter. But I wanted to go because at the time I was managing Dion Warwick. And because um, we had a, a company called December 12th. She was born December 12th. Frank Sinatra was born December 12th. And Frank was basically her mentor, as he was so many people. Who's, somebody got an alarm going off? Anyway. <laughs> no, I got to put it this way. That's, that's my fault. My bad. I'm sorry. Why? It's okay. People Wait, are actually calling. Do you, do you have to take a pill or something? We'll no, take, we'll take a break a minute. You know, whatever you want to do, Pat. Okay, I'll, I'll get I, back to you. I know you have a drinking habit. Maybe you want to take a shot or something. Or whatever. <laughs> we so, tried that once. <laughs> no, we didn't. We ain't doing that again. Mm -hmm. But, no, 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 no. but uh, so what I did, I mean, we were promoting Dion at that time in every way. I mean, she had major hits, Never Love This Way Again. And uh, I, we got her to get a new label because she lost her label. She lost management. So I tried to help every way I can. And fortunately, she crossed over with Kashif, Barry Madelone, the Bee Gees, and go on and on and on. And she went on to win six Grammys and an Oscar for music in her heyday after her major career. And Sinatra was very influential in that because, as, he, as I said earlier, he was a mentor. And um, in trying to promote her, we promoted her with the Carter administration for the ambassador health. And they did that for celebrities, you know. And I almost choked because they actually picked her. I mean, we were lobbying to get her the job. And she's the only girl I know, woman, that she had to excuse herself before giving her speech because she went outside for a cigarette. Because <laughs> oh. this is the ambassador to health. Yeah, I know yeah. what I'm saying. And she was smoking two packs, two packs a day at that time, the ambassador to health. I mean, I, I mean, that's why every time I started to believe something, it was like Disneyland, you found out, you know, Mickey this Mouse wasn't true, real. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I tried, believe me, I tried to be straight and narrow. But, you know, as I just pointed out, here's a Carter and... She's the ambassador of health. Where do you go with all this stuff? It's, it's, it's totally insane. You should write a book. I, I think I did, didn't we? I think uh, you oh, yeah, oh, yeah, right. I forgot. Yeah, it's yeah. called Hollywood Godfather. But the most fun guy I watched being groomed by the mob, and that would be a guy nobody would ever assume, was um, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, I knew him as the worst actor ever, and then he became president of the Screen Actors Guild. And I'm saying to myself, what's he doing out there? And I knew everything that was going on with the unions. I was out there a lot. I mean, I used to hold court at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and they'd be up the, at the Polo Lounge every night at 5.30 at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And, you know, there was a lot of people like Swifty Morgan and people like that, the colorful characters of the world. And we watched Ronald Reagan be groomed. And then he next he became the governor of California. How exactly were they influencing him? What did they What did they offer him that he should even get involved in this stuff? I, you know, I don't know that. I, I mean, I, I I wasn't privy to that, but I also know that the the 
the messages and the money that was being contributed when he wanted to run. Ah, okay. With Lou Wasserman, and he had the who's who of Hollywood behind him, you know, the Xanax, everybody. And the good news about that was he was controllable. And that's why you may have heard this if you were around that time. I remember hearing it when he used to have the Palm Beach cabinet. He used to have the cabinet and different advisors like you do in Washington. Right. Well, he had, I mean, at Palm Beach, Palm Springs cabinet, where they'd go out to Palm Springs to Sinatra's house for the weekend and basically dictate what he'd be doing. And I mean, it was a crazy, crazy situation. But I had a lot of fun with him. I had a lot of fun with his wife because I never liked Nancy. She's an arrogant little bitch. I mean, really rude. <laughs> <laughs> she she wasn't very popular with anybody, not just you. No, I mean, I mean, the funniest story I can remember when she was uh, first lady of California, a very close friend of mine, Sidney Korshak, out of Chicago. He owned, he actually owned what we call the La Bistro, and they had front people, but the mob had their money, and it was the, the place to be in Beverly Hills, on Cannon Drive. I mean, I remember the two guys that ran it, Casper and Jimmy. I used to see Jimmy every Sunday at Good Shepherd Church. And that's why I thought maybe the guy's a good guy. But then again, he saw me there. I was there every Sunday too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm with, I'm with Korshak in, at the pump room in Chicago. And he knew I was going to, Chicago, going to California. And uh, Ocado came. Everybody get, get, bid me farewell. And Korshak said to me, you're going out there. He said... I own La Bistro Restaurant. That's not for public record, but I own it. I'm gonna call them right now, introduce you on the phone, because this was before cell phones. And he got the phone and we were talking. It was like lunch, just before lunch in California. And he said, I'm sending this kid out there. And when he comes in, he's my guest. Take good care of him. Right. And always make sure he's at my table. I said, well, that's nice of him. So I, uh, I think it was Jimmy, who was the general manager, said to him, who's the kid? He said, all you got to know is the kid is coming. <laughs> and that was for so many places because thank God for Costello's security of me and not exposing me that I, you know, I only wound up with 23 indictments. I could have probably gotten so many more because of being at the wrong time, at the right place, the right place, the wrong time. I was always somewhere and walked away, fortunately. But I had more fun one night in particular, and uh, I'm, I'm hosting Tony Curtis. And we just finished a movie called Lepke, L-E-P-K-E. And he played Louis Bocoltor, whose nickname was Louis Lepke. And I played Albert Anastasia, and I was, we just formed the Murder Incorporated. And they organized the garment industry, which we all know, the Gambinos control that and all the truckings, and poor Tommy, his son who I'm close to yet, did some time on all of that. But where we're going with this is that here we are, and we're celebrating the films in the can, and we're sitting at, you know, Korshak's table, the place is jammed like it always was. And here comes the first lady of California, with her state troopers in plain clothes, 
and she's with the girlfriend. Because we, if you walked into Le Bistro, very elegant, French, French doors, curtains, everything, amazing tapestry booths. And if you walked in, the maitre d's desk was there. There was an elegant bar, crystal chandeliers and all that, right behind them for if your table wasn't ready, you'd stay there. And to the right, in the far corner, under the staircase, going up to private dining rooms, was Korshak's table, so he could witness everything. So Tony and I are three sheets to the wind already. I mean, he, I don't know what he was doing, because this guy took pills up, down, across, whatever he did, but I was drinking a lot of champagne. So we're all, you know, seeing her, obviously, everybody knew, because she was a movie star too, Nancy Reagan. And they kept looking at us. And Tony's a little nuts. I, I think everybody knows that about him. Very funny guy. So he's waving like a woman, a little wave to her. <laughs> and she's looking at him like, I'm going to bite your head off, you idiot. <laughs> so Jimmy comes over and he says to me, uh, Mr. Russo, that's the first lady of California. I said, where? He points to her. I said, no, that's Nancy Reagan. She's not a good actress. Because <laughs> 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 I never liked them. Guess. So he says, no, but she's the first lady of California. And when she comes in, she normally sits at this table. So would you mind if I move you? I said, I don't mind at all. But how about you do this first? Will you call Sidney Korshak and tell him you're moving the kid because Nancy Reagan came and we didn't finish our dinner yet, but also remind them that I'm here with Tony Curtis. He said, well, I can't bother Mr. Korshak. I said, well, you're bothering me. <laughs> so, so he says, but she's the first lady of California. I said, I'm from New York. She ain't my first lady. <laughs> so he went back. I don't know what he told her, but she flew out of there, man. Flew out of there. I saw her many years later at her husband's birthday party. I got Sinatra to invite me to a Dutch Reagan's birthday party. It was an amazing party. On the back lot of NBC, they filmed it. And at that night, we all had to call him Dutch. So I made it my business to be in her face again. It was like, she was saying like, I can't get rid of this guy. <laughs> Pat, should I tell him the last story about her? At, at, at uh, my, my friend Matt, Matt Mateos on a Sunday night? Oh, absolutely. Well, this, this oh, story, this, this story you're gonna really love. Man. It's part of political history, man. Now this we're is... moving forward. Now she's the president's wife. Oh, my. And we all hung out as a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast remember me. I was there every Sunday night because I was a groupie. Sunday nights, you had to have a reservation, a standing reservation. Now, you could call up to like 6 o'clock that afternoon if Dean Martin canceled or Frank Sinatra canceled. Or, you know, that's the kind of people they are. Mm -hmm. Gregory Peck, that, that place on Sunday night. And what's funny because the people who were religious, we would go to Good Shepherd Church, 5.30 Mass, and go there. By, by quarter to seven, we were all at the bar, and then we'd have our dinner. This we, was Mateo's you're talking uh, about. Mateo's, right, on, on yeah. Westwood Boulevard. And Matty Mateo has a great history with Sinatra. In fact, Sinatra's mother, Dolly, delivered him. And, you yeah, know, she was a midwife. She was a midwife. And yeah. a lot of young people don't even realize what a midwife was. You know, most families delivered their babies at home. They didn't go to hospitals and all that, that kind right. of money. And they would use some kinds of, sometimes, instruments that would damage you in birth. Mm -hmm. 
Like a lot of people didn't know, Sinatra had a tremendous scar on his face from a, a, an instrument when they were trying to uh, pull him out of the uh, the cavity mm. to be nice. Mm -hmm. And um, But Maddie, why I'm bringing it up, he was really, his neck was twisted and grew up that way. So he looked like a little bit of Cosimoto with the foulest mouth in the world. I'm trying to set the stage. Oh my. Oh yeah, this is a story. Yeah. This story is insane. Oh gosh. So now she's sitting like early dinner. She probably got there like 5.30 to 6 o'clock. Maddie gets there like 7.30, 8 o'clock every night because he stays till closing. So he goes, comes in and goes right to her and she's whispering to him and you could see her being with a little bitchy mood from a distance. Mm -hmm. So he starts screaming because that's how he is. It's his place, you don't care. Do you know who this effing bitch is? This is the first lady in the United States. You know, that's who this is, you know that. <laughs> and he's saying the C word, everything. Ooh. No, he's foul. Oh, so true. now we we were at the bar, and near the bar they had one of the secret service, and they go, um, Pat, what, what was our, our secret service name? You found out, I forgot. Yeah, uh, Ladybug. No, Ladybug or something. What was the name? No, no. She well, to, to, just so everybody knows, the first lady and the president have code names. He was he was Lancer, I think. Uh, I, I forgot what she was. She had, yeah, she had a, a typical feminine type of name, whatever it was, I forgot what it was. So this guy is talking to headquarters or whatever in his sleeve. Uh, what do we do here? We have a situation with the ladybird and uh, they're calling a C and he's saying the words. Ooh. And uh, F and bitch and all, I mean, and, and it was like crazy. And then, you know, they must have said get her out of there because they didn't know what was going on. So they get her to hustle her out and as she's passing the bar, she sees me again. <laughs> I think that was, that was the nail in the coffin. <laughs> Say, what's he doing here? <laughs> she probably thought you orchestrated the whole thing. No, but yeah, I mean, right. because, you know, it was three major things that involved her husband. I have nothing to do with her husband. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, Bill Clinton. Oh, my God. My man, Bill. Save the best for last. Yeah. And he was, I'll tell you, as far as a guy hanging out, I didn't know him at all. And uh, I knew of, of him, obviously, like we all did. And uh, this guy, um, Sol, Sol, Carl, Carl Solomon from Australia, owned froggy.com, which was like owning AT&T in Australia. And then he had so many businesses. So he invited Bill Clinton to come out for a big charity benefit. He gave him 500,000 to show. So, I me, mean, I'm hanging around and they're calling me and they're saying, uh, Johnny, uh, this guy we know him calls Solomon, wants you to come to Australia, he'll pay for everything, he'll give you $100,000, would you go? I mean, if he didn't give me the 100,000, just buy me an airline ticket, I'd go if I had nothing to do, where am I going? <laughs> yeah. So I go there and we check into the Ritz-Carlton in Double Bay, Australia. Oh, excuse me while I uh, interrupt you one second. Didn't he, uh, this guy Solomon, didn't he want to do a Godfather 4? Oh, that that came about while we were there on the boat. They, he, they, he wanted Clinton to be in the movie. He wanted Clinton to be in the movie to play Clinton. He yeah. had Madonna in the movie. I mean, he had he knew everybody, but this guy's a nut. He had all yeah, this apparently. money. No, totally insane. He called William Morris and said he's going to put up all the money 
get me screenwriter. I mean, this guy's crazy. And, and there was a lot of news. I have all the newspaper stories about it, actually, too. But while we were there on his boat for five days, we were there. I mean, this guy had a yacht. I knew nothing about Australia. And you're going up and down the coast. There's all casinos, Harborview casinos. And this, I mean, this guy knows how to host you. <laughs> I mean, we had more fun, more women, and I got to know Bill Clinton in a different way than most people. And then we did the benefit that night. It was amazing, black tie, they raised all kinds of money. And we go upstairs and go to bed. And this was a Sunday night. And we're at, uh, how many, uh, I don't know, 16, 17 hours ahead of you people here. And um, we're still hanging around. And all of a sudden, coming down on the balcony, like frogmen on wires, helicopters, surround the hotel. So I go from, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same floor as Bill, I go out my doors and my doors are locked. Oh my gosh. And it's Secret Service. They said, Mr. Russo, go back to bed. I said, there's people coming down on the balcony. We all have balconies. He said, we know. He said, are you watching television? I said, no, I'm sleeping. They turned the television on. You know, it was like one o'clock. I ain't getting up that early. We were out all night. So I turned the television on and I actually see the second plane hitting the towers. No way. Now, way. Way. Wow. No, this is like insane. Imagine being with Bill Clinton during 9-11. That's insanity. I mean, that's how crazy my life is. As you keep listening to this podcast, my lovely audience out there, you're going to think I'm Walt Disney. I'm creating these stories as they go along. Right. This is all factual. I got newspaper stories. I mean, there's one story that I'll tell you after I come back with Howard Stern. You could go on go, um, Howard Stern on Demand with Gianni Russo. I documented it on that, at that show because I know nobody would believe me. So now I go back to bed and I, uh, Bobby, one of his top guys, said, you know, well, the president wanted me to tell you goodbye. We had a great time. I said, where's he going? And this is something I never knew. Every living president, if there's a national emergency on our land, we only had it one other time with Pearl Harbor, but Hawaii is so far away. They put every living president in the air and take him away. Nobody knows where they are. Or if he was in the White House, there's a bunker that they take him down to. Mm -hmm. But obviously they didn't have enough you know, security and whatever the, the detail they were traveling with. So they took him to Germany to an army base. So I said to Bobby, I said, Bobby, what about me? Is where do you want to go? <laughs> yeah, what about you? Where do you want to go? So I said, I, I don't know. I'm a, I want to go to Italy. I'll go to Italy. He <laughs> says, stay in your room. I have somebody call you. So about a half hour goes by. I could see the helicopters, you know, Bill's gone. <laughs> I'm abandoned. My friend left me with all the toys, and I didn't want to play anymore. I want to get out of there. Everything was closed down, as all the world knew. But being in a foreign sale, it was even worse because of the fact that, you know, I couldn't get to my kids. I didn't know, you know I, who knew what happened. Right, it was I had chaos. kids living in New York. You know, I had a lot of stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And plus it was downtown, where, you know, little Italy is. I didn't know how bad it was because all you saw was this disaster. But um, so they, I got a call and they, they you know, he gave me his rank and all that stuff. And I'm saying, okay, I wonder what your rank is. How am I getting out of here? 
He says, could, could you be ready at 0100 or whatever stupid thing? I said, <laughs> I'm ready now. Where do you want me? He says, be in front of the hotel in a half hour. And they, they took me to Italy. And then uh, they, dropped, they dropped me in Naples, actually, at a naval base. And then I went to see my friends and stayed there for a couple of months while things cleared up. But uh, that's my story of the presidents. I know. That I mean, I, I tell you, when you and I started this book, I, I was thinking, I hope we have enough stuff to put in a book <laughs> until I realized when it was done, we have enough stuff to put in three books. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, it, it, you, you led an amazing life, and it, and it continues today. Yeah, that's, that's the good news. I mean, it's so crazy because whoever knew... When uh, I was I was at the Resorts International in in the eighties I think it was or nineties and uh, I was opening for Don Rickles Sinatra arranged because I wanted to be a singer mm. and Sinatra was my only singing teacher and if Sinatra picked up the phone you're singing to, with anybody he wanted you to so as a practical joke as he was he called up Don Rickles and said you know he called Steve Wynn actually and said, Don Rickles loves the way Johnny sings. He's here with me at State Street, and he wants Johnny to be his opening act. Give him 3,500 a week. At that time, he was paying opening act 500. Don Rickles almost fell off the floor. Why I'm setting this up. <laughs> now I go to Atlantic City, I finish my half hour, and I go to my, back, go to my you know, backstage, and I'm gonna change out of my tuxedo, and the, the guard knocks on the door, and he says to me, um, Mr. Russo, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Trump want to see you. I said, you stop busting my balls, please. I got to get out of here. He said, no. And I'm saying to myself, why would they leave the show? I just got off. They came to see me. And they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> they were about to open Trump Marina, 1989, Atlantic City. And they asked me to be a headliner. And I was, and people couldn't believe it. I mean, I couldn't really sing. I was a good showman. But I opened, and on my bar here at this wonderful place, you will see an invitation, hand-signed by Donald Trump before he was president, and they were hand-delivered to all the high roller lists that I gave them by Hanson Carriage, all velvet, and I mean, this guy knows how to throw a party. And we had a party in Atlantic City, bar none, bar none. But now here, I mean, that's my sixth president that I've, I got to know. I can't believe it. I'm a kid from Mulberry Street. <laughs> Man, what, what can possibly top this uh, next week? Oh, why don't you tell them the little tidbit? We're okay, gonna okay, we're going to talk about uh, how you broke into this game, what you started doing at a very tender age for Frank Costello and the people you met along the way and the adventures you had can fill a lifetime. And by the time you were done with that, you were only like 18. I mean, it was uh, th those years we're going to talk about uh, from the time you started working with Costello until the time he sort of bailed you out when they caught you not attending school and they had to do something with you. Otherwise, uh, he would have had a problem with you. Well, yeah, because at that time for our listening audience, uh, in New York City, maybe like so many other places too, if you weren't in school, they had a squad of truant, truant officers, kids who were truant from school. I didn't even know what the word meant. I saw a guy in a brown uniform follow me. I was looking to see if he had a gun. I was <laughs> yeah, you were carrying about, around 50 grand in... Uh, yeah, I was, I was yeah. on my way to the count room 
at, at the uh, at the Wyndham Hotel. No, but that next week is going to be. I mean, I think okay. every week is going to be a great. I don't know when we're going to have time for guests. But you know what I was oh. impressed about that we, we we mentioned a couple of times and Megan tags the shows all the time with. Our first podcast went out this Wednesday. I got such a tremendous response. I had this kid, James Martin. He worked for me at State Street. So as we you mentioned all the time, we all have our own emails identifying it with, you know, Hollywood Godfather podcast. Megan has hers. Pat has his and I have mine. So we are really going to start talking about this because I asked James Martin to tell me the formative years at State Street because I don't know whether he was a bus boy or wait, I don't know what he was. I didn't really get to know my help by their first name, but I don't know who James Martin. Mm-hmm. But he praised the podcast. Really? And he said, I'm telling everybody about this. I tell people about your life and your story. Nobody believes me. Now you're going to tell them themselves. they got to hear it for themselves. That's why. So I told him to send us an email, and next week he I, I asked him to tell me one of the most important stories that impressed him while he was working at State Street. Mm. So I think that could be yeah, really be interesting. interesting. And everybody okay. out there that's listening to us, we encourage you, first of all, as Pat says, hit subscribe because we want to keep coming to you. Secondly, stay in touch with us, man. Yeah, send us your emails. We'd love to answer questions and talk we about things add, you want to hear yeah, about. And we will answer them all. Yes, absolutely. So okay, until next week. Yeah, we'll wrap it up. Wrap it up and... Uh, We love you. God bless. Be careful and safe. Good night. Good night. Good night. Wine-colored days, warm by the sun, deep velvet nights. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Email Gianni Russo with your questions, comments, and for information regarding his motivational speaking appearances to Gianni at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com. Email Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments to patrick at hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com and visit amazon.com for a listing of books he has written. I'm Megan Horan. I can be emailed at megan at hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com and would enjoy hearing from you. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. But most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails. Good night.